Have you ever had an experience at work which has stuck with you and been particularly traumatic, even though you cope with lots of stressful stuff on a daily basis? Have you ever found yourself ruminating and going over what happened time and time again and felt like it was all your fault, even though colleagues have reassured you that you're not to blame? If so, you may have become a second victim. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Caroline Wright and Dr. Lizzie Sweeting, who are both GP trainees and GP clinical leadership fellows, both who have a particular interest in the second victim syndrome. So listen if you want to know just exactly what we mean by the second victim and how it's different from the usual stresses and strains of our jobs and why it can have such a devastating effect on us and why often things people say to us can make it worse, not better. And listen if you want to know the most useful way of dealing with it and supporting colleagues when we notice that they are struggling. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr Rachel Morris. I'm a GP, now working as a coach, speaker and specialist in teaching resilience. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been described as frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water. We hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to feeling stressed and exhausted. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two options. Stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in. It is possible to craft your work and life so that you can thrive even in difficult circumstances. And if you're happier at work, you'll simply do a better job. In this podcast, I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control and love what we do again. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. So it's fantastic to have with me on the podcast today, Dr. Lizzie Sweeting, who's a GP trainee on the Pennine Scheme. She's also a GP clinical leadership fellow working currently with the Improvement Academy. Now, this is a team of improvement scientists, frontline cl clinicians and patient safety experts. Um, all put together to deliver real and lasting change. So welcome, Lizzie. Thank you very much for having me. It's also brilliant to have Dr. Caroline Wright, who's a GP trainee in the Airedale Scheme in West Yorkshire. And she's also a GP Clinical Leadership Fellow working with Health Education England on their Future Leadership Programme. So hi, Caroline. Hello. So Caroline originally got in touch with me after I think we met during a Next Generation GP event that I was speaking at. And we had, I think, mentioned a little bit about the, the second victim during the session. Is that right? Yeah. And so you got in touch to say, actually, I think it'd be really good to do a podcast about this. And then having sort of chatted to Caroline, I thought, actually, yeah, this would be 
a really, really important thing to talk about because I think it's something that affects us all to some extent. And I know, Caroline, you've got some personal experience of that, haven't you? Yeah. And then, Lizzie, you're actually taking the lead um, on this for some work about the second victim for the Improvement Academy. Yeah, I'm leading some work on our kind of Just Touch and Second Victim network. And we support a website called secondvictim.co.uk. So we're working closely with research teams on how we can best support healthcare professionals who experience second victim. Great. So it's really great to have you both here to talk about this. And I'm just so grateful you, you got in touch about it. But Lizzie, can I start with maybe a definition of, of what a second victim is? Because I'm not always entirely clear about what we mean by the second victim. Yeah, so there are um, various definitions out there, but one that we, we use at the Improvement Academy and in our literature on the website is that a second victim is a healthcare provider who is involved in an unanticipated um, adverse patient event, whether that be a medical error or patient-related injury. And they become victimised in the sense that the provider, so the healthcare professional, is traumatised by that particular event. So it's normally in the sphere of patient safety incidents is when second victimhood, as it's often called, comes in play. And is it just healthcare that this happens or can it happen elsewhere? So it's been coined in the kind of healthcare kind of research has been coming out for the last 20 years and it's always been related to healthcare but I would imagine it is applicable to all industries. Yeah and so why did the Improvement Academy think it was really important to to do this work? So one of my predecessors, so one of the previous clinical leadership fellows um, started this work back in 2017 and they had been working with a research group called the Yorkshire Quality and Research Group And they do a lot of research into workforce, well-being, workforce engagement in the sphere of patient safety. And one of the colleagues who I work with, Professor Rebecca Lawton, does a lot of work in this sphere and found that, that, you know, it can happen to up to 50 percent of staff um, within the healthcare system can experience second victimhood as a result of a patient safety incident. So they thought it would be a good idea to bring together all the resources and um, literature into one place to support staff involved in healthcare, patient safety. Well, and that, that's a huge statistic, actually, because I was going to ask, you know, how much of a problem is, is this really? And 50%, that's, mm. that's a lot, isn't it? And what sorts of issues does it cause for people? So it can vary from per- person to person. It's a spectrum like anything, but some people can suffer from acute stress. Others can be at the other end of the spectrum and suffer from suicidal ideation and even suicide as a result of being involved in a patient safety incident. And the incidents themselves can also kind of lead to medico-legal consequences, which then in turn can cause more stress and anxiety for all those involved. So how how would I know if I have become a second victim? How would, how would I know what the difference is between second victimhood and just sort of experiencing the the stuff that that goes along with the job really yeah and I think that's a really important question especially in the time we're working with with COVID and the increased pressures that all GPs and all healthcare professionals are working under so second victim is related to patient safety instance whereas I would say all those other things so you can feel stress due to workload issues and all the other things that are going on in the world but second victim is specific to being involved in a patient safety incident and the the feelings that you might get from being involved in that 
such as shame and guilt might differ from the, the stress um, and fatigue associated with normal workplace pressures. Mm. So does it always have to have an element of this was my fault, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't done this? Well, not necessarily. So it might have been an, unav- an unavoidable patient safety incident. And I think what Caroline will go on to talk about later is something that was probably unavoidable. But as healthcare professionals, we're all quite perfectionists, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do things and we don't like ad- making mistakes, let alone admitting them. So I think there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with being involved in an incident, even if you it was a tiny part to play. And nothing could have been changed. And does it always have to have an adverse outcome? Or can you be a second victim just if someone's making a complaint and it's a bit vexatious and nothing really bad happened? So I think this is a bit contentious um, Mm. at the moment. My colleagues and I were actually doing a literature review into this and we're finding that a a lot of the papers in the academic world mix those together you know whether it's a complaint whether it's a traumatic event such as a cardiac arrest for example versus whether it's something that could have got you know gone wrong due to the error of a healthcare professional so it's all quite mixed together and it's quite muddy water yeah the problem with medicine is nothing's ever really cut and dried is it I, I guess it's I guess it's like life but it you know, I'm sure most people listening to the podcast will be able to put their minds back and think to times when, yeah, things didn't go to plan or something really dreadful happened, whether it was their fault or whether there were a sort of conglomerate of things that happened. I can certainly remember some, some really dreadful stuff, actually, when I was working in A&E that, that happened and, you know, maybe things could have been done differently. Maybe they couldn't, but it was very traumatic to watch. And I think even if everything that could have been done was done. You always have that niggling, what if, you know, what if something different had been done? What if that hadn't happened or all this hadn't happened? And it's quite hard to get, to get your head round really. So I think this is, this is really helpful to discuss whether we are actually really having second victimhood issues or whether actually there's lots of little incidents that have, that have gone along. Cause like you said, I think it's that, that spectrum of things that cause, that can cause real stress. Mm-hmm. But Caroline, I'd like to come to you because I know you've had some real personal experience of this. What, what, what happened to you? I was working as an ST1, so the first year of general practice training, but in a local practice. I really enjoyed it. I really liked the practice and the team had really good feedback and my supervisor was really great. I was seeing a patient in his 30s. I recently had a baby. He had a long history of depression and heavy drinking. He'd always had limited engagement with the practice. He'd see a GP once and then not turn up to the follow-up appointment and then wouldn't see anyone for sort of six months to a year. But he had multiple visits to see me over a three-month period. I felt that we really built up a relationship. He started self-help. I started taking antidepressant, reduced his drinking, which was a massive achievement, and started attending a family support group. We reached the stage uh, where we both thought um, that we could reduce the frequency of his appointment. And the next would either be his antidepressant review or earlier if he felt that he needed it. A couple of weeks passed. It was a Friday afternoon, which is when I always had a tutorial with my trainer. So neither of us had any appointments booked in. And my trainer came into my room and told me that this man that I'd been seeing had committed suicide. And he'd found out the day before. He gave me lots of support. He'd already reviewed the record and discussed with the other partners in the practice who agreed there was nothing that they would have done differently. 
So there was no blame or criticism. No one told me that I'd done anything wrong. It was explained to me that there would be a significant event within the practice and I was encouraged to reflect on my portfolio, which is something that all GP trainees and GP. He also told the training programme directors, who are the people that run your GP scheme in your area, so that I had other people to talk to if I wanted to. I sat in my room and I felt completely devastated and overwhelmed and really sad for the family. But the thoughts that were going through my head were that I should have been able to do more, that I should have been able to prevent it. I kept asking myself, would things have been different if he'd seen a different GP? I thought that I can't be a doctor. I felt that I was incompetent. And actually, even if I wasn't incompetent, I was too emotional because if this has destroyed me, then maybe I'm just not cut out to be a GP. And I love general practice. (laughs) Overwhelmingly, I felt that my colleagues, my peers and my friends and family would think that I should have been able to do something, that I'm responsible for this man's death and that I'm a bad doctor and an awful person. And I plucked up the courage to ring my mum. She trained as a psychiatric nurse and she worked in the community for many years. And I thought that she would have been through a similar experience. And she told me that she'd never been in the same position which reinforced my feelings. And I was then too ashamed to share with anyone else. So I went home, but I didn't tell my husband or my friends. And over the following six to 12 months, I really struggled with the components of second victims. So with traumatization, avoidance and guilt. In terms of traumatization, I had lots of really intrusive thoughts. I felt like I was re-experiencing the events. I had a lot of vivid dreams, slept very poorly, and I was quite tearful. Um, I felt very anxious um, and overcautious whenever I saw patients um, that were low in mood. And I felt a real deep sense of guilt and shame that was really overwhelming at times. And also in relation to other similar situations, so somebody jumped in front of a train that I was on about six months later. And I felt incredible guilt and responsibility for that. And then even after I'd been through the significant event, which actually was quite helpful in my practice, being able to go through and review the history, even being able to understand the contributing factors to the situation, I still felt that I was the responsible practitioner and that patient put their trust in me and I should have been able to do something. I've since shared my experience and my thoughts and feelings and I've been able to gain perspective and it's become manageable, but it's illustrated how important the issue is and how much we do need to talk about it. Mm. I'm just so sorry to hear that that you went through that. And it, it sounds like it's still quite a, an emotional thing for you now, thinking back on it. How, how, how do you feel sort of looking back on all that? I think I do still feel emotional. And I think that as healthcare professionals, we all have some sadness or regret that we carry in our hearts. And there are always certain patients and certain circumstances that hit more of a nerve with you than others but I think now I sort of realize that it's part of the job and it's a privilege of what we do bad things will happen and we will make mistakes to all of us but it's finding a way to manage that and not let it impact on your sense of self because that's what really happened with this I it really impacted on how I viewed me and I felt like it was an intrinsic issue with me and that's that's really difficult isn't it when it's like part of your identity and Part of part of who you are, and then then presumably that just exacerbates the, the the shame the shame that people can feel. 
And Lizzie, is that a fairly typical reaction that people have? I mean, what does the literature say about that? Yes, and I think one of my colleagues who has previously worked in an occupational psychologist role, she describes patient safety incidents for healthcare professionals as an occupational hazard. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the world that we're working in is getting more complex and busier all the time, so we're going to make mistakes. And even if we don't make mistakes, things will go wrong. And I think, especially within medics, as I mentioned before, you know, we're a certain type of person that goes in. We want to help people. That's kind of what we are. And I know I've listened to a few of your podcasts before. And if you think about the drama triangle, you know, we always want to be the rescuer in a situation with a patient. We never want to be seen as a perpetrator. And I think all the feelings that Caroline has shared there and, you know, I've heard her talk before about this and it's still emotional listening to her share a story now. It's not something that I've not heard before. And I think we've all heard similar stories, whether it's someone that's been involved in a different type of incident and had not so much of the intrusive thoughts but still felt that shame and that guilt I think it's something that we're all bound to come across and you know from the literature which that I know Caroline talks about trauma and she talks about avoidance and then sort of the guilt and shame out of those what what tends to be the most prominent so I mean I think the confidence that Caroline's mentioned there, so, you know, it's been shown in in one paper that following a patient safety incident and involvement in that, healthcare professionals make change to defensive practice Mm. because they've been involved and have been scarred by what's ever happened in the past. So that's a a real um, common theme that comes out of those that have been involved in patient safety incidents. And, you know, it can lead to absence, even leaving the career, as Caroline's described there, and that's been um, reported in the literature as well. Yeah, so you've got leaving career, you've got avoidant practice, which isn't good for the doctor or, or, the, or the patient because you get over, over investigation, you know, take a lot of time, adds to your stress. You've got the general stress of the traumatic thoughts and things. So it's, it's generally really, really bad news, I guess, if, it, if it's not sorted and treated in a minute i'm going to ask you you know what 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 should we do almost as first aid for a second victim but i just wanted to pick up what caroline was saying about felt that you couldn't share it with your friends and your your partner is that is that a very common thing that you've seen in the literature as well or i think that shame element yes definitely right. and i think a lot of the work we're doing at the moment is to try and reduce the stigma associated mm-hmm. with being involved in something like this so that Caroline and I were discussing earlier about you know if you know someone else has been through it in whether that be within your training scheme within your organization within the region that you have someone to turn to to just talk and you know there's no judgment there and that's something that it's harder to measure in terms of literature but it's something that's recognised as something that can be really supportive for those. Caroline, look, looking back on this whole thing, before it happened, would you ever have been able to predict that that was the way you, you would react? No, I don't think I, I could have predicted it would be quite so distressing for me because there's been other experiences that I've had, particularly in A&E, that have been very distressing, but they just didn't have the same effect on me and I was aware of the concept of second victim but I always thought it was in relation to errors 
and everyone told me that I hadn't made an error. So I just thought that it was because I was a bad doctor. So do you think that we tell ourselves these stories, even if we literally haven't done anything wrong, our brains are always trying to tell ourselves the stories. It must, it must have been something that you did wrong. And it must have been a, de- a defect in your training or your learning or something wrong with you that this has happened. Yeah, I definitely took on the responsibility for it, which we do, you know, it's the same back to that drama triangle. We take on a lot of responsibility from our patients. And I just kept thinking that I was responsible for this patient. Therefore, I should have been able to do something to prevent what happened. It's a very difficult thing, isn't it? Because we've just done a series on complaints and mistakes and how how to deal with them. and. There's a lot of stuff around, you know, the shame that we feel and the upset and the defensiveness, even if it's not our fault. I think the thing I struggle with, what if it is our fault, you know, and there will be things that happen that are that are our faults because nobody can run on a 100% success rate. And I was wondering if this whole second victim thing is worse, the more personal responsibility we do have, you know, so if actually you can directly trace something you you did do or you forgot to do to the harm that's been caused or to the adverse event. Does that make things a lot worse or is there not really much correlation? So I think that there's work going on in this at the moment. I know this research is looking into it at the moment. There's not a lot of literature out there around the whole second victim phenomenon. I mean, the first time it was coined in literature was only in 2000. So We've made great progress to get to the point where we're talking about it now, but I think it will only be going forward that we're able to kind of get those insights into whether there is a relationship between the severity of the incident and then the severity of the response to it. And so then what seems to help? What helps in this situation? I was interested that Carolyn said she couldn't have predicted it would be, you know, which incident would it would have been or whatever, having been through, you know, seeing lots of dreadful stuff in A&E as you do and, Suddenly there was this one thing, there was this one thing. What, given that you can't predict it, what should you do when it happens? I get it. You're pushed for time and with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. So I think it's tricky and we're working on this at the moment because often it's quite piecemeal by organisations in what support they can provide to staff, depending, for example, if they're a trainee, they have the Royal College involved, they have the education board, there's lots of different players. So it's quite hard to have an approach that suits everyone and is individualistic. But I think it's about, we've talked about, you know, providing a supportive working environment that if something bad does happen, that staff are encouraged to adapt and, and are aware that this happens and this is an occupational hazard. And then 
if something does happen, which, as I said, is, is probably likely to happen to all of us at some point in our careers, is that organisations are able to provide you know, quick and appropriate responses to supporting staff and tailor that to an individual. So whether it's offering them the space to talk with a peer, whether it's offering them counselling, whether it's for some people, it might be a period of time off work. And for others, it might be that actually, no, they need to stay in work and have something else to concentrate on. So I think it's it's really hard to pin down because I think it needs to be done on an individual to individual basis. How important do you think is that whole counselling type professional debrief of, of the incident? I mean, some of the work we're doing at the moment, actually, we're finding not that Um, important we're finding actually that if you get things right in creating the supportive working environment so whether that be having Schwartz rounds where senior leaders talk about when they've made a mistake or having that peer support network and we talk about you know having those relationships between one another which I think COVID has somewhat not helped with in the fact that we can't have those personal connections sometimes with staff I think if you get that right then going on if someone is involved in patient safety incident then hopefully they won't need the counselling or the more individualised responses but it's hard to measure isn't it all all these relationships and and treatment of staff and culture it's a really really muddy world. Mm. And Caroline looking back what would have been helpful to you? I think the thing that Lizzie was saying about peer support would have been the most helpful because although my trainer and practice were really supportive, I was just too ashamed to tell them what I was thinking and that I was struggling. Um, And every time anybody asked me how I was, I just said I was fine. And part of that as well was because I felt the, the thoughts were so distressing, I didn't really want to think about what was going on I think if I had somebody who was slightly removed but in the same profession so through that peer support just to be able to share my experiences and for them to share theirs as well and to help normalize it and just to let you talk and let you explore your thoughts a little bit like in coaching and to sort of really unpick what's what was going on because the thing that's really helped me has been has been sharing and hearing other people's experiences and also how grateful they are that somebody's talking about it and that realization that there are other people who felt exactly the same Mm. so someone you could have just phoned up and said i just this thing has happened i just need to chat can we go for a drink can we go for a chat and that would have would you think it would have sort of de-escalated it in in your mind and allowed you to process it a bit bit differently yeah, perhaps. And I think that's probably an individual thing. But I think because in this situation, I felt like it was so intrinsic, it, I wouldn't have been able to phone somebody up that was a friend to talk to them about it. But had there been sort of a peer support network through sort of the deanery, um, that would have been useful to talk to somebody in a similar situation, but that's a little bit removed. I'm just sort of struck by the fact that at the time you were in a training practice, you had a trainer who sort of heard about it, checked things, broke the news to you, and hopefully in the, the, the best way possible reassured you, you were able to talk to your TPD, all those sorts of things, they were in place. But I'm just conscious that there are other doctors that this happens to a lot who aren't trainees anymore. They might be consultants, they might be GPs, they might be 
the senior partner in their practice and sort of they're running the show and they might just not have that that buffer of of, of people i mean lizzie does does the second victim thing does it change with experience is there any evidence that it you get more used to dealing with it or is it just as bad there's no evidence to support either way with that but i think i was listening to someone talk the other day saying that they had spoke with a consultant who had was three months away from retirement and had never had a patient safety incident in their career and so you know that they'd been a consultant for nearly 20 years and then something happened just as they were kind of looking towards retirement and it hit them just as bad as it hit the junior doctor that it was their first mistake so it's very individual isn't it how everyone copes with these types of incidents and you may not have that sort of immediate immediate support you might be the one giving support to other people then suddenly you need it and 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 then it might be even more difficult to to ask for help if you're the person usually who's who's helping others I can imagine it would be really really quite tricky and and like Karen says I think it's that peer support that's so lacking sometimes that being able to just debrief with either formally or informally with with colleagues who you know have got your back and who you like and who you trust and I guess that's the importance of 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 building trust within teams and informal connections within the workplace and and things like that and I'm also interested in how we support other people with this so Caroline you phoned you said you phoned your mum and her response you know actually made you feel worse and I'm sure she obviously didn't mean didn't mean that she was just being honest she hadn't ever come across that what what can people do when when people do tell them things like that? If someone came came to you and, and expressed what had just happened, what's the most helpful thing? What would have been helpful for you at the time? I think the whole just listening. Anybody who's had sort of experience of coaching, Nancy Klein's concept of listening with fascination, just letting them talk, explaining, even if you've not felt like that yourself, and um, that you know how common it is, and you know that lots of people feel that way to help to normalize it and just let people talk and let people explain how they feel and explore what's going on for them so there's nothing really possibly that you can actually say it's going to make it better but actually that just being there and listening and the empathy could be really helpful yeah because like you said you know everyone said to me well it's not it's not your fault you're not to blame as if that sort of makes it okay, because I think that we, as healthcare professionals, we want to know, you know, what went on, was it, was it my fault? But that doesn't change that you feel responsible. And then feelings often out, outweigh thinking, don't they? They, they trump, they trump thinking no matter how irrational they might be. So, you know, Lizzie, we talked about the importance of, of workplace and stuff, but I'm sort of quite interested in as individuals, what can we do? to prevent this or almost sort of catch ourselves in the moment or, or flag up, this might be a, a risk factor, red flag for a second victim situation. Is there anything that might just flag up to us when it might be one of those situations for either ourselves or our colleagues? So I think it's tricky. I think just we all need to be aware ourselves of what second victim is and how that might affect our colleagues differently. So just by raising awareness and talking about these types of feelings and the reactions to being involved in events, as Caroline said, 
normalizing it, not normalizing the fact that something has gone wrong, but normalizing the fact that we're talking about something like this and that it does happen to us all. And I think, as Caroline has shared, being vulnerable and, and allowing others to see that so that if something does happen to them, they might talk to you about it. They might not. You might not be able to help them um, even by just listening, but you might be able to point them in the right direction and say, oh, actually, have you considered that you might need some extra support other than just talking and just knowing that there is that. I was just wondering, you know, what should you do if you spot someone who you think, actually, you know, they are really suffering from the second victimhood right now. So pointing them to some support. Is there anything else you can do there? I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? I, I don't know how you would feel or I would feel if someone came up to me and, and I thought that they commented that they thought I was maybe struggling, that might seem as a bit of a personal attack on me and I would feel ashamed that and that could just all add to, <laughs> add to the whole feeling of second victimhood. So I think it, it, it's a hard one. I think you've just got to be really individual, but just know that it's out there. And Caroline, what would have helped, you know, well, when you were sort of in that place where you were withdrawn and not talking to people and whatever, what could someone have done to sort of break in there and support you? I think if somebody had shared a similar experience with me and I would have been able to identify a little bit within that, that actually this is very common and I'm not the only person that's ever felt like this, which is one of the reasons why I thought it was so important to come on and do this podcast and for Lizzie to share all of her learning and knowledge, because I just think all you have to do is hear one story that sticks in your head. Mm. And that really strikes me that what you're not wanting is someone to come along and say to you, not your fault. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. What you wanted was someone to come along and go, that's really crap. I've been through that as well. We all go through it. It's an occupational hazard. And that's, it's, it's the listening and the empathy rather than just trying to fix it. And how long did you think it took you to sort of come out of it and, and, and feel like you were recovering? I think I probably had about six months um, when it really affected me. And then probably sort of another six to 12 months after that, when it, it would raise its head in different circumstances. And then I finally plucked up the courage to share with the other fellows on the Future Leaders Programme because that's such a supportive, safe environment. And that was really helpful. The messages that I got from people really sort of helped to put it to bed in a way, not that I don't still think about it and sometimes things trigger it, but now I'm aware of what's going on and I can stop and think because I have a lot more insight now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sort of quite interested from you, Caroline, and you, Lizzie, with, with your work. You know, what, what, what do you really think people need to know? And what message would you like to get out there about the second victim? That's a, a really good question, Rachel. I think I, I'm repeating myself, but just knowing that it's there. And, and I think being able to share your story, you might see that as being vulnerable, but actually people really value and, and that ability to connect and talk things through is better than kind of any support or counselling that's on offer, you know, just having one an another to talk things through with. I think that's what strikes with me. It's all about the relationships at the end of the day. Yeah. 
We're not so good at doing that. As I think as professionals, we don't like to admit when we've made mistakes or whatever. But personally, when I've heard about other people's journeys and what's happened to them, and it's just said, okay, that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's sort of giving you permission not to do shoddy work, but to forgive yourself and, and realise that this is an occupational hazard. As we said in another podcast on, com- on complaints, someone was saying they teach their medical students to say, I am going to make mistakes and some of them will be serious. And then maybe tack on, and, and that's okay because actually we're human we're human beings, aren't we, at the end of the day? Caroline, what, what message would you really like to get out there if you could? Similar to Lizzie, but I think just talk to somebody. Um, if you feel like you're too ashamed to talk to anybody, you know, there will be somebody, everybody has a defence organisation and actually you don't have to have made an error to talk to them. They're there to support you. There's already always somebody that you can talk to and it, and it will help. And so in a second, I'm going to ask you for your, your, three, your three top tips just to sort of put this to bed. But I just quickly want to touch on COVID because we talked about... Um, the fact earlier that COVID has has changed everything and there's probably lots of different incidents happening during COVID. I mean, Lizzie, have you guys seen a, a change in the sort of second victim stuff that you're seeing as a result of COVID? I, I think not as a result of COVID itself, but I mm. think the fact that we're all removed from one another, you know, a lot of us are working remotely, you don't have the time to create those connections with people. And I think... As Caroline says, though, you can actually create safe spaces online, on Zoom, whether it be on Teams, for people to share, but you just need to put a bit more into it. So I think COVID has has a lot of negatives, but it can bring people close together as well. Actually, reflecting on that, I actually think that sometimes it's easier to share things in a sort of Zoom room than it is when you're face-to-face, and certainly with busy professionals who just don't have the time, you know, to be able to jump on an hour of a and interact, you know, a, a virtual meeting in an evening is a lot easier than having to travel to find a venue or sit in someone's front front room. So you, you you can do it, and it does seem quite a safe space. So I think we probably need to start utilising that a bit more. And you know, I know Caroline mentioned earlier, you know, it would have been great if there was sort of an, an official peer support network had been set up. But actually, that's something we can do for ourselves. You know, you know, find out who your mates are around, find out who are people in the similar situations, similar times of life, and actually form a, form a group that you just meet up either either just for drinks or just to chat or just do some case review or share things that have gone on. I, I bumped into someone at a, when I was doing a Lead Manage Thrive course. It was before COVID, actually, and he was, he was there as a GP. He said, I'm just about to go on a, my yearly weekend with my young practitioners group. He said, we've been doing it for 40 years. It's brilliant. <laughs> and he said it was what had, what had kept him going. Because there were people that got him that he knew if he had any issue at any point, he would just be able to phone up and have them then. So sometimes it's actually taking that step and doing that for ourselves rather than waiting for it to be to be set up. And, you know, if people move into new areas and stuff, it's sort of find find your tribe, find the people that are really going to get you and you're going to be able to talk to. So we're, we're very nearly out of time. Caroline, let's come to you. What would you be your three top tips for people? I think firstly would be just to... Bear second victim in mind. Just have it in your head so that if something happens and you identify with that yourself or you see it in others, just so that you can be there to offer the support or get that support yourself. Secondly, I would say, just like you've been saying, have that support network there, whether it's one person or a group of people, have people that you feel truly 
safe to share those things with and be there for them as well when they need to do the same. Um, and then thirdly, be kind to yourself and be kind to the colleagues that you work with. We'll all make mistakes. We'll all have bad things that happen and just be nice to each other. Be nice to yourself. Yeah, be kind definitely to your colleagues and even more to yourself because the self-talk we do can be quite atrocious, can't we? You'd never speak to your best friend the way we speak to ourselves. Thank you. And what about you, Lizzie? Yeah, so on a similar theme, really, I think the importance of having a supportive and working environment, so those relationships and connections between one another. I think, as Caroline just mentioned, the importance of being kind to one another and ourselves. I think maybe some of the importance behind that has been lost recently, and it's kind of trotted out as something that we should all be doing. But but we, we need to be kind to all of us, ourselves, especially in the current climate. And then I think it's often about, you know, the shared experiences and the shared learning that we can take from these things and not being afraid to share. I think it's, you know, it's a very brave, courageous thing that you can do, but it will help. It will help so many people. Lizzie, the, the, the work that you're doing, where are you sort of hoping it's going to end up and lead to? So we have a website at secondvictim.co.uk, which is regularly updated with the literature um, and kind of real life case studies of how things are working in practice. It's that website there. It's for individuals that think they might have second victim. It's for managers that are, are looking after people that might have been involved in incidents. And it does have some staff stories on there. And then we're leading a, a wider piece of work on just culture, which is a whole other topic in itself. Mm -hmm. But we have a network in Yorkshire and Humber where we bring work from, from this with the Yorkshire Quality and Safety Research Group so we can share to lots of organisations. And what sort of training do you think people need to have in this sort of stuff? I, don't, I think training would be the wrong word because okay. I think that would suggest it was like a tick box exercise. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, once you've done your training you're competent in yeah, boom, right tips yeah. off second victim don't need to say anything more about that anymore yeah yeah but I think we just need to emphasize the importance of those relationships and connectedness amongst all of us and, and that's hard to do yeah yeah and 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 just culture and relationships work a topic for a completely separate podcast in fact we have just released one on relational abuse in the workplace and we've done quite a few about speaking up and it, and it all adds into that doesn't it I think I would just say at the end of this we've been talking about you know having a supportive working environment that there's not always things we can do to massively change that but the one thing we can do is be vulnerable ourselves get to know people on a personal level just by having coffee having lunch chatting away sharing your own experiences and if you can start to change that just individual by individual then you're going to start to affect the culture where you work so everybody go find your tribe make sure you're connecting with people regularly make sure you're recognizing if you've been a second victim in a in an incident or something that's gone on and reach out and get the help you need and there are professional organizations out there who can help there's practitioner health there's a lot of counselling and coaching and, and support out there. So please, please don't go it alone. Do reach out and talk to, talk to people. So th thank you girls so much for being on the podcast. It's been fascinating. And just thank you for reaching out and, and suggesting this as a topic as well. Thank, thank you. you. And if, if you get more, you know, I'd love you to come back and share, you know, your findings in the future about, about, about what's happening. And maybe we should do another one about just culture and more relationships in the workplace. So <laughs> watch this space.
<laughs> so see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.